Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I want to talk to you about cybersecurity workforce trends. And in specifically, we've always thought that being a CISO was the apex job that you could always strive for. But you might find out that there's going to be a market demand out there for similarly skilled and background expertise that isn't a CISO, but might be just as important to an organization's. And for that, I have Joy Purser on the line. But before I get started with Joy, just wanted to say, please remember to follow us on LinkedIn. If you're not doing so, you'll get a lot more insight than just our shows. And please, if you're on a podcast program that you like, give us a five star or some thumbs up so other people can help find us as well. But meanwhile, Joy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you on board. Yeah, I got a chance to get introduced to you. And you're like a fascinating background. I mean, 20 years in national global security. You did, what, nine years at the Pentagon. I worked at CISA and things like this. Tell us a little bit about your background, your experience, and all the fun things you've had a chance to do you know, that brought you up to where you are now. Okay, thanks for asking. Yes, I do have 20 years of global security experience. And I say global security because I've worked at the Department of Defense for nine years, actually in the Pentagon. There was a stint at the White House where I was involved in the semiconductor supply chain issue back in 2017, 2018. And I was doing work at the Department of Defense that was related to internal audit of major IT systems. Let's say Department of Defense buys a $13 billion electronic health record. My group was asking, are the people and the dollars over time aligned with what we had originally planned? And if not, what are cost-informed options to get back to solvency? And I also was at CISA, which is the Department of Homeland Security's cybersecurity agency, as the first ever senior executive regional director for U.S. Region 4. That's the southeastern United States. You probably hear a southern accent. I am from a small town in Georgia. Very proud Georgia Tech alum as well. And as the regional director, it was my job to evangelize the CISA mission with the business community for critical infrastructure. That includes financial services and banking, the transportation sector, the electric grid. And it also involved leading a cadre of security advisors who were dispersed throughout the Southeastern region. Some were experts in physical security and some were experts in cybersecurity. And marrying those two cultures was no small feat and I enjoyed it immensely. I also had some time at PricewaterhouseCoopers leading the enterprise risk management process for very large clients, as well as pandemic relief projects for, again, large clients. Wow. So I, I'm feeling a little bit humbled by all the amazing things that you had a chance to do, but that's wonderful. And I thought it was interesting. One of the things you mentioned really caught my interest. You said you're marrying these two disparate groups of your cybersecurity folks which are going to be one type of demographic, and physical security folks, which tend to be another type of demographic. What, what was your experience in that? How well did that work? And, and you know, tr trying not to make too many stereotypes, but there are some that are reasonably valid. What did you find about the two different groups? What did you find that made it work? I need to explain the context first. Okay. CISO was created in 2018. So by federal government standards, it's a pretty new young agency. And it is an amalgam of some legacy programs. And that includes the physical security advisors. They are your bread and butter 
U.S. Department of Homeland Security physical security experts, and a lot of them were former law enforcement. And because they had been there first, they had a lot of great relationships in the Southeast. If you think about how often the Super Bowl is in Florida in the Southeast or the Kentucky Derby or giant football games, there are lots of large gatherings and those those present security risks. And so oftentimes the physical security advisors would attend in advance the security exercises. Sometimes they would guide or even lead those security exercises and they would advise on hey, did you think about the second or third order impact of this gate over here, behind here, and if that would be a proper egress route if there were, you know, some mass casualty? And so it was really a honed tradecraft in physical security that they would engage with the community. Now, the cybersecurity advisors were new and very talented, all very hardworking, But the fiscal security folks really didn't understand what the cybersecurity advisors did. They didn't understand the evolving mission of CISA. And so it really was my job as regional director to help them learn to work together. And I did have some specific techniques by which I helped them understand the value of each other's work and work closely together. Because it sounds like then the pre-existing group were the physical security folks, because, of course, Homeland Security was set up almost 20 years ago now to be able to deal with that. And then cyber seemed to be the add-on, although those of us who are familiar with CISA tend to think of it as, well, that's a cybersecurity group. Right. To a large extent it is. And I think we have seen some amazing things come out of that group in just the last couple of years. And so one of the things that I had found from time to time is that when you try to combine a workforce that is used to cops and badges and you get things done by yelling at people saying, you know, get out of the car with your hands up is compared to the other group. It says, can I reboot your computer? Obviously I'm being an extreme here is that whether it works or not is often just comes down to personalities. There's really no magic formula that I have found. Now, when you were trying to do that, is there anything that you found out that allowed those two work groups to effectively align other than the fact that they both had the same return address on their pay stubs? Yes. A lot of them were from the area that they worked. Mm -hmm. So there was an Alabama team. There was a South Carolina team. There was a Florida team. And Florida was the largest team. Florida is a big state. There's a lot of critical infrastructure there. Just think about the ports there, the electric grid. There's a lot going on in Florida. So what I did was have a Florida team meeting so that the physical security advisors and the cybersecurity advisors would come on the call at the same time. And I also sometimes, occasionally, created space so that they could get to know each other personally. And really, when you peel back the onion, a lot of people have a lot of the same foundational desires, aspirations, family. There's a lot of ways that people could connect. And so one of my strengths as a relator was to look for ways to allow people to connect with each other, and form those relationships that were the foundation of trust. And that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. And that's a very good insight. If you create a foundation of trust, you then have an ability to build a diverse workforce. Absolutely. And absent that trust, regardless of how homogeneous your people are, it's, st- it's still not going to work. So I think there's a little bit of wisdom there for everybody to think about focusing on the trust. And you were able to do so in a wonderful way there 
in the public sector, but your experience was not just confined to the public sector. As you'd mentioned before, you had a chance to do something on the outside, I think, in the, in the big four and a half, which is what I always call it because you never know who's going to go out of business and emerge next. But could you tell me a little bit about your experience there? Yes, I was at a global big four consulting firm. And I'll never forget that I was virtually deployed to help with the third largest county in the nation, which had $426 million in pandemic relief aid. And they had a huge challenge to be able to know how to expend the money within maybe just 10 months or so. You'll probably remember when when the public sector states and counties were getting money for pandemic relief, they had to spend it within a certain amount of time. It was mm -hmm. taxpayer paid dollars. And the way the politics of the county worked, the county commissioners needed to vote in order to approve the funding. And so I was virtually deployed to help them come to consensus and to work with them and also to work with the other consultants at the company that was brought in to do this project. And so the consultant didn't know me. And so my approach with them was really a one-on-one -on -one get to know you approach. It did result in a lot of meetings and man, I was working like 14 hour days, but it really paid dividends to take the time to get to know the individuals. And those people have been my friends and and colleagues and cheering section in the years that followed. So what you have then is an opportunity to combine your public service experience and your private experience in different roles. And some of them have been quite influential. Others, like, every, like all the rest of us, we had to sort of fight our way up. But in our discussions we had before the show, you had identified an idea that I thought was fascinating and why we're talking about today. And that is sort of a new role based upon pain points that businesses and organizations may be feeling. So this is the good stuff, folks. So hopefully if you've been listening up to this point, you're going to learn something really, really cool. So Joy, what are your thoughts here? Tell me about it. What, what are we talking about here? Gee, Mark, businesses are feeling pain for someone who knows cybersecurity, who sits with clients. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're a big technology company and you make data backup, for example, and you sell to a lot of very large companies or banks or Fortune 100, and your technical sales teams are sitting with customers. And the customer is, is listening to the new features of the product, et cetera, but then they start asking questions about cybersecurity. It could be about risk management. It could be about cyber ops. It could be about vulnerability management. Could be identity access management. It could be the upcoming regulatory environment. I mean, it's such a broad world, right? The world mm -hmm. of cybersecurity. And we, we talked about it being a full-time overtime job just to keep up. And by the way, CISO Tradecraft is a great source that I've discussed before for keeping up with the latest trends in cybersecurity. And so the trend that I've seen is that the sales teams aren't always able to field the breadth of questions about cybersecurity that clients are asking and is becoming painful. What's happening is the questions are all going to the CISO, but the CISO has her hair on fire trying to protect the business, trying to run the enterprise risk management program. I mean, if it's 
a small company, of course, the operation and, and org structure are different. But the point being, the CISO is really busy on protecting the business and just doesn't have the bandwidth to feel all these manner of questions or keep up with all of the domains of cybersecurity that these questions are, are coming from. And so companies are feeling pain here. And so they've decided to create a new role. And this is at the same time they're laying off staff, which is a natural market correction as we emerge from the global pandemic. But they're creating a role, and it's sometimes called global lead for field cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Global means it operates with all of the customers of the company. And currently, uncertain where this role sits, but it sits with the sales team, and it sits during these meetings with customers or clients and fields all these questions. So that's one aspect. The other aspect of the role is that it represents the voice of the customer back within the company to the technical engineering teams. So the engineering teams are well aware of cybersecurity or technical related questions that are being asked by clients or customers. So in a way, it's a little bit like a pre-sales engineer. I mean, I'd done that job many years ago where you go out on the four-legged sales calls and the sales rep would go out and play golf with the vice president and just lose by one stroke. And after several drinks at a nice steak and lobster dinner, yet the pre-sales engineer is in there sweating over a hop keyboard, working with the technical staff, basically demonstrating that the thing works. And then when the VP comes back and says, Nancy, what do you think? Is this program any good? She says, oh, yeah, this is awesome. We had this, we, we worked it all day. And then you validate it. But at the end of the day, your pre-sales engineer doesn't get a commission, doesn't get part of the sales, doesn't get any big add a boy or add a girl out of it. It's just a matter of that's part of your job and you're a road warrior, but you don't get all the really fun perks. So what you're saying here has a couple benefits. One is as a CISO, I got to tell you, I get these things all the time where somebody hands me this big stack of papers. Oh, by the way, can you fill this thing out? This is our security questionnaire. And we're trying to do a deal. So can you get it on Monday? You're like, it's Friday afternoon. Okay, here we go again. And then the next time you get one, it's got other questions in it. Some are the same, some are different. Some don't even make sense. And yet, the difficulty is, is that to get the deal closed, you have to be able to demonstrate to the client or the prospect that you have a, a firm understanding of what your own security environment is. And then B, you can articulate about their information and how it's going to be protected and whether you're using multi-factor authentication, is it going to be in the cloud? What are the backups like? What do you have in terms of protection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And turning to the CISO is just not fair. Because you said she's busy with her hair on fire trying to defend the enterprise and you, you squeeze this stuff in. But the reality is, if you put somebody out in the field, and as you indicated, that is a global lead for field cybersecurity, that's a little bit different. This is not a starter role. This is not somebody who has said, hey, I just did my A plus or I've got a basic cert and I want to get going in the role. This would be somebody who probably would like to stay more technical, but doesn't necessarily want to get involved in all of the bureaucracy that's involved in being a CISO, because that C carries with it an awful lot of overhead. Am I summarizing this correctly so far? Am I trying to, am I understanding where we're going with this? Yes and no. There's one very important distinction is that it is Joy Purser's belief that the global lead for field cybersecurities success must not be tied to sales numbers. Hmm. 
because the role, and, and I have friends who are in this role for, for very large companies and their experience and have been worked for multiple companies in this role. The experience is that the global lead for field cybersecurity must be a solution agnostic, trusted advisor to clients or customers. Mm -hmm. And the minute that a customer or client catches a whiff that this person is trying to upsell or be salesy to them, they won't trust them. And so you have to build that trust with a customer by being an authority on cybersecurity, being demonstrably knowledgeable on the domains of cybersecurity, not being in sales. So the metrics can't be tied to sales numbers. That's the important distinction. And that would certainly provide an independence, but the difficulty is, is making sure that you don't get the deal. The salesperson doesn't say, yeah, you get to walk back to the airport. I'm heading out without you. And yes. You're on your own. Yeah. In addition, at the end of the day, nobody eats if nobody sells. That's and, true. And so you've got kind of this conundrum between how are we able to go ahead and have this agnostic type of a person who says, well, if you get the deal or don't get the deal, I've, I've remained true to it. But if an organization really had their act together, you wouldn't have a whole lot to fear from that. But reality is none of us are perfect. And so when a client asks something where, you know, like, not exactly, yeah, is this person going to be able to have the savvy to kind of dance the little dance that you do while you get your act together? Or they say, well, man, yeah, that's a real problem we got. And yeah, I've been telling people that for months and they won't fix it. And well, maybe now they will, because you're probably ain't going to buy from us because we just boogered this whole thing up. Could go totally yep. sideways. So it really comes down to somebody who could balance that. And that's why we're saying it's a senior role. It's not somebody who is either going to be totally candid. Let's face it, they're, even that in a relationship could be dangerous. Or over here where somebody is just trying to go ahead and throw whatever it takes to get the deal but it's really an honest broker in there. And so if the customer can field all these questions in that session as a global rep, rather than, well, wait, let me get an answer from headquarters. Wait, let me get an answer from headquarters. Is there any empirical evidence that suggests that that's going to improve and increase the likelihood that it's going to work? That is to say, if I go to a VP of sales and try to pitch them on this idea, and the question that they're going to ask is like, well, prove it. Should you prove it? See, this is a pain point, though, with businesses, G-Mark. What is the pain point? But it doesn't mean it's the right solution. He said your, your, your hand hurts. Well, that's true. Arm, it solves a hand hurting, but you got a bigger problem. But part of running a successful business is listening to the customer. And customers are asking these questions, and they're not satisfied with the answers currently because there's not someone who's sitting in this role as global lead for field cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is a market demand and it's a trend that I'm seeing. And it's interesting because the person also would need to be able to reflect customer questions and comments in the cybersecurity realm back to the engineering teams. So the person also needs to be a good tech translator mm -hmm. to be able to explain what customers are wanting to the software hardware development teams for the business. But yes, at the end of the day, it's about expanding the business and expanding the business means listening to what the customer wants. And so this is what customers are wanting. 
Now that makes good sense. And let's say, okay, fine. We accept that premise. For those, again, who are listening, most of our folks are either CISOs aspiring to be CISOs. And they may say, well, hey, this could even be a stepping stone to being a CISO because it's almost up their kind of apparel. But to whom would this person report? Would they report to the CISO? Would they report to the engineering department, the sales, somebody else? And if so, why? I don't know. Yeah. But let's let's no, pull no, the thread on that. Let's explore them. What do you think? Let's pull the thread. We both work with the military, so we can use pull the thread. If the person cannot report to the CISO, I don't think, because there would be a dotted line mm -hmm. in that they would be working with the CISO, but wouldn't be working under the CISO like many operations do and orgs do, but this wouldn't. Would it report to the sales team? There certainly needs to be great trusting relationships between the cyber advisor and the sales teams because the sales leads have to be willing to bring this person to the table, right? Mm -hmm. They don't trust that the person's not going to advise well. They're not going to bring her to the table. But is that person's performance going to be rated by the sales? We talked about legal. I'd love for you to give me your idea on that. Yeah, that was, that was my little golden apple that I rolled down the aisle to say, <laughs> how about this? Because as you look at it, reporting the CISO, if I had a really smart person that was capable of feeling this and I'm the CISO, guess what? I'm pulling her in. I'm going to get her to work on local stuff. Forget about that client stuff. We got to solve our problems here. If you're reporting the sales, again, as you say, you got a little bit of a cross-threading with regard to the incentive program, where if you want the person to be viewed as an independent uh, broker, and yet they're being motivated by the sales department, then they're not going to be necessarily received by the customer as being agnostic. And I worked in an environment that was like that. So secure computing back in the 1990s, had a chance to work with a bunch of really cool people. Jeff Moss was on our team. He went on to go ahead and start Black Hat. And of course he had DEF CON and, and Jeff's done some amazing things as well as you go down with you know, Ray Kaplan. And I could, if I stopped and thought, I could kind of name off about half a dozen who's who that John Sekovich, who was the VP there, had been able to herd all these cats into one team. And what was interesting is that Secure Computing, when I got there, had a number of products. Oh, I think like 18 or a huge number of them. And I was doing my MBA at the time and thinking, like, how do you do this many different products line at the same time? But what was everybody was proud about was the fact that that Secure Computing consulting team was product agnostic. And we would go in there and in exchange for being paid a, a fair rate, we would then tell the client what's really what's best for them. And sometimes we would say, well, what's best for you isn't what we sell. It's something over there. And of course, the sales team would go berserk. And they're like, well, why didn't you tell them to buy our stuff? I says, because they're a Windows shop and yours is Linux and they need a Windows solution. But you could have sold it anyway. They believed you. Well, that's why they believed us. And so this actually got to the point where it went all the way up to the CEO, where it was sort of like, I want you guys to sell. And most people are like, no, it's not what we're here for. That's why we get the rates we do. This is why we're trusted. And so how did it end? Like most corporations, they bundled us all up and they sold us off. And we, we ended up with a little startup as a core group. And then that startup went on and got acquired a couple of years later. But it does show, at least from my personal experience, because I've been a sales engineer, then I've been in this trusted consultant role and been a, a CISO role, kind of almost everything else in between. I had a chance to do my tour duty at the big four as well, that it can be done. But doing it requires a good understanding of organizational politics. Now, in general, and maybe we're going to, turn this a little bit, and I still owe you an answer on legal, but let me, let me take this conversation a different direction and we'll save that as a, as a hang fire item. CISOs have to play politics. You got to be aware of your policy yes. and things like that. Whatever it does. 
if you're dealing with the board, you need a champion up there. Otherwise, you're standing right. up there like a little mouse in front of a whole bunch of wolves and it's not going to go right. very well. But you don't want to go over the head of your boss, who's likely, but not always the CIO or, or even going over the CEO. So if you look at your experience and you've done an awful lot of understanding the politics, both in business and in the government and things such as that, how do you align things like politics, the policies that come out of that, the regulations, even from the government side, those all are sort of intertwined. How do you avoid as a CISO or a global lead for field security or somewhere in between, how do you make sense of this big minefield of stuff out there? <laughs> Was that for a big, long question? I don't have a good answer. I, th I think relationships are really, really, really important at the end of the day. And I think being able to have difficult discussions when they are needed to be had is really important. And I think that's something Generation X does not do well, is know how to have difficult conversations. And I think really at the, the bottom line is trying to have empathy for the person across the table and what are their motivations and what's the context that their, their perspective's coming from. And so really, it's just about one-on-one -on -one relationships at the end of the day. So from a political perspective, it's probably best to build those relationships, correct? It is. And to build a coalition where you can, yes. And for somebody who is fairly new in a job where they're trying to get the lay of the land and understand, well, I think she looks like the really important person, but sometimes it's the, the man behind the curtain that nobody sees that's pulling all the levers. What advice would you offer when somebody gets into a new situation in a security leadership role to effectively scout out that political territory so they don't end up blowing themselves up inadvertently by doing something wrong when with a little bit more understanding they might have gotten it right? Well, at the end of the day, never burn a bridge and resist pressing send on the angry email, of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also, to try and discern who are the influencers in the organization. The influencers aren't always the people with the explicit power, but they do control the tone of the organization or the business. And so I think it's very astute to, to ask and to observe carefully who are the influencers and to make sure that your relationship is tight with them. And I think you're onto something there because for example, let's just take Congress for a situation. They're looking and debating things. I mean, like, are you passing this bill or that bill? It's difficult to imagine that every single member of Congress knows everything in that 2,200 page bill that's been put together. And typically it's the staffers who are advising them, but then even then it's the lobbyists and the other people who are influencing the staffers who are influencing that. So this whole big food chain of influence. But if you really want to affect somebody's decision-making, and there's a little bit of wisdom here, find out whom they trust and gain that person's trust. Because somebody who is making a million, billion dollar decision somewhere in that range is not necessarily going to listen to somebody who just walks in the door and they're new. But to listen to trusted advisors, and these trusted advisors built their reputation over the years. So targeting one down from that, this cadre of trusted advisors, and say, hey, let me share with you, let me show you, that may be a better way to do it than trying to do a full frontal assault in the front door and wondering why it didn't work. Well, this is why lobbyists get paid the big bucks, because they understand their clients, and they understand how Congress works, and they don't 
irritate people by advocating in the wrong way or at the wrong time. And they do their job well in terms of influence. And it's really relationship-based. They've worked on the Hill with people many moons ago, and they've maintained those relationships. They understand their trade craft in tracking what committees are reviewing what legislation that's coming down the pike, and they know how and when to engage at just the right time with the right person in the right place. And remember what Mark Twain said, America's got the best Congress that money can buy. So a, a couple other thoughts from me, from, again, from your extensive experience is, how about the subject of time management? Now, you're able to accomplish a lot. You said you work these really long days. I mean, in the Navy, when you work 12-hour days, we'd say, yeah, it's half, a, it's half days, right? 12 on, 12 off, it's a half day. And that was our joke about long hours. But reality is, CISO or security leaders juggling a whole bunch of things. There's a lot more they could be doing, but typically it's a matter of almost deciding what you're not going to get done simply because of the demands that are on there. But are there any lessons learned that you've got from your success at the global management consulting you've done the big four or for working in your other roles in the federal government? Yes, I've learned from observing others. So in a big four consulting environment, you bill every six minutes of your time. And you're judged at the end of the day of what portion of that build time is billed to a client versus overhead billed to the company, which the company has to pay for. So you become very focused on how you spend your time because it's being scrutinized at all levels in the business. There are just certain things that have to get done, administrative things, the signing of papers and the inputting of time and you know, those administrative types of things. And so I find that you need to schedule time to check things off your list. I was just talking with a CISO friend in Atlanta, and she said this morning that, that she had a very long list for today. And I told her that I used to carve out at least a couple of hours on a Friday afternoon to just take care of all that stuff. And I didn't like people wanting to do meetings with me because that would eat into my time to actually sign people's paperwork, you know, for their vacation or their advancement or their bonus or whatever it was. So you need to schedule that time. And I would say for people in cybersecurity in particular, because the field is so fast moving, that they need to schedule time to keep up with it, to keep up with the news. When I was at the Pentagon, I had a coworker that used to block out a couple hours of time on a Thursday morning called thinking. Just thinking. In other words, don't interrupt me because I need time to do this specific activity that is required of me for this job. And it's, it's almost something like a luxury, but for people who have done so and they've been very successful people, they still get stuff done. It's a mm -hmm. little bit like saying if someone said, okay, go do 200 push-ups. I can do 200 push-ups, but not in a row. And <laughs> back 10 years ago, I could knock out 75 in a row. I was in pretty good shape. And then so give me two and a half trips or two and two-thirds trips to the gym, and I knock it out. But even if you had to do one or two at a time, you could eventually get there, but you need some time to rest. And so if you don't give yourself that mental rest, I mean, physically, we get it. I've run a couple of marathons, but... Today, if I want to do my 26.2 miles, it's not going to be all at once, but I could still get through there. But we find out then as we try to add more and more things to our day that the time to back up, to think, to reflect becomes quite valuable. And that time for yourself, book a calendar appointment for yourself. It doesn't have to be 
Thursday mornings. And it should not be huge, huge, big, long chunks of time, but it doesn't hurt to take one hour and just make yourself unavailable. The other discipline that I found out is turning off the automatic delivery of your email. Now, I've set up my email, so I got to hit F9 if I want to go ahead and see my next batch of emails. Because otherwise, it's ding, 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 ding. And of course, what happens, you're trying to write something, ding, what is it? What is it? And you're constantly being distracted. And when you know you don't need to be distracted, you can place your email very quickly using an exchange, which is what I do, the Microsoft Outlook, just saying, hey, just set it up so it's not automatic delivery. I have to go get it. And now, little things like that, Now, if something's on fire, someone's going to call you on the phone or they're going to show up in your office screaming. And as a result, you're probably not going to miss something that's horribly urgent. But otherwise, that's another approach toward being able to do time management. And as you had said, have a schedule. But what do you think about allowing people to sign up? So I've seen people who have their own calendars. They're mostly a lot of them are sales. Like, hey, you want to talk to me? Go to this website and book a little window. And I tried that with somebody and I got an email back a few minutes later saying, no, your appointment's canceled. Well, that didn't work. So I never tried again. At least if you're talking to somebody and they say, hey, I'm Mm going to be on a plane, I'm traveling, things like that. But Mm -hmm. how have you found the best way to manage your time with meetings and people wanting to spend time with you? Do you set any requirements Mm -hmm. whether or not a meeting should even happen in the first place? And if so, what would that be? Well, I was in a position as a senior executive where my entire day would be filled with meetings. And I would say a lot of CISOs are in that position. Mm -hmm. And I would be biased towards a 30-minute meeting, first of all, rather than an hour. And I would hardly ever desire an hour meeting. I would do a 45-minute meeting. And I would explicitly say at the beginning of the meeting that this is a 45-minute meeting because got to have time in between to recover. Things Mm -hmm. happen. You know, fifth cup of coffee is required by 10 a.m. So I would do 45-minute meetings, and I would guard that last, that bit of time. If somebody needed to hop on a quick call or if I needed to sign somebody's, you know, paperwork or whatever and just get little things done. Put a load of laundry in the dryer. I mean, whatever it is. A lot of that list gets really long. So that was yeah. one thing I would do. Yeah. And just, you just stay in that left seat in that cockpit for hours and hours and hours. You need a break. Otherwise it's just, you're not going to be at your, at your top form. Okay. I, I promise I come back to the, my thoughts because I want this to be more about you. But one of the things I had suggested is what about legal as the entity that would have ownership of this global lead for field cybersecurity? Now it sounds a little bit crazy. But I remember a few years ago, I think it was Alan Paller and I were having a conversation. Alan's the late founder of the Sands Institute. And we were kicking around ideas about how legal could be involved. And I found in some of my classes, I would ask, you know, anybody here report through legal? And over time, I would see one hand show up every few months and two. And then it's not mm-hmm. a trend, but it's not off the table anymore. And the idea was this. If you take a look at an example, when Yahoo was acquired, And it turned out they had, I don't know, 1.5 billion hacked accounts or some other compromise that never showed up. Why would that not be part of the due diligence? If you think about due diligence, it's usually the quants, the financial people that are looking at the EBITDA. They're looking at all the run rates. How do we make this thing profitable? How would we pull up money for ourselves? You're going to bring in the lawyers to structure the deal correctly. But the technology people come in at the end. And sometimes you find out that you have stranded investments in IT because the company that you haven't told them about, and all of a sudden you spring it on them, they said, well, guess what? We're merging with that company. Well, 
company that we're merging with, we just signed a three-year contract with Apple and they're all Microsoft shops, so we can't get out of it. So they just bought three years of nothing. Yes. That's one end of it that it could be where you strand that investment. But the other end is the fact that were you to be under the aegis of the legal department, you could sit at the grown-ups table. Legal could call you in and said, what do you think about this? Take a look at their cybersecurity. And it's becoming more and more of a concern today as we find out from insurance and things like that. So that would be my thought about having legal uh, as a top cover. A, you're not reporting through sales. And so your concern was, okay, if you don't get the deal, do you get fired? Well, the salesperson might, but you weren't there to close the deal. You were there to best represent the organization and the expertise that your organization brings to the client. If you were working over for the CISO, and again, she's going to pull you in and work for me. But at legal, they probably are not going to understand what you do a whole lot. But show the value to the organization of A, keeping them out of trouble because there's not going to be promises that are made out there that can't be fulfilled, particularly if it gets to the contractual point and extending that for organizations that aren't just in sales, but are looking at Mm -hmm. doing the mergers and acquisitions. If I were a board member and someone's going to be wanting to spend a few hundred million or a few billion dollars of our money on acquiring or merging with somebody, I want the best cybersecurity expert I can have to do a real due diligence on that target. And I don't see it. So what are your thoughts on all yeah, that? I, I think maybe, I don't know. I, I tend to be open to ideas. And then I also like to try on other ideas. So in a big company, it could also be the CTO or the CRO, chief risk officer. Mm-hmm. So I was just thinking the chief technology officer would be responsible for developing the next generation of, of products and developing them securely. Mm-hmm. So that person would need consultation or advisory on cybersecurity. I just don't know. I mean, if, if everybody would report to legal, if they all went legal top cover for what they did. The other thing is, would the cyber expert want to have legal as their boss? So how could legal accurately judge their performance? I'm not sure. I don't have a good answer. I'm just tossing around ideas. And, and that's okay. I mean, I didn't roll this thing out as a definite answer. As they say, this is just a, an idea to kick around. But yeah, yeah. chief risk officer, that makes really good sense as well. You're not really managing the risk of the organization. You're trying to influence entity that's going to go ahead and maybe do a sale or thing like that. Well, mm-hmm. the answer is we don't know, but it's open to, <laughs> open to determination. And we'll see if somebody can figure that one out. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I yeah, know you heard it here first. We're, we're, yeah, we're all, yeah, we heard it here first, and we're almost at the end of the show. We kind of burned up our time. We want to be respectful of our listeners' time as well. But you've got some interesting trips coming up. Anything you want to talk about that you might want to mention, just to kind of round out the fact that you're like this, you know, the the complete individual. Well, I'm co- going to RSA for the first time, so I'm really excited about that. I've right. been to San Fran in quite a few years. And other than that, yeah, I'm doing some international travel and Mm -hmm. life is good. And you're doing a lot of cool stuff. So that's great. So it's been really interesting listening about your background. And I think you still got a whole lot more opportunity to add huge amounts of value out there. Your career and also your ability to advise other folks. And I think your insights that you've provided today have been tremendously helpful. And I hope for a lot of people. So I want to thank you for being that type of a giving person who's willing to say, hey, I want to help others along their way. 
And so you've done so very much. Any Thank last thoughts that you'd have that you'd like to include before we wrap up for the day? I would just say I really appreciate your comment on giving back. And I do believe it's really important for cybersecurity professionals to mentor and coach the next generation of leaders. And a couple of my favorite organizations are Cyversity and also Year Up, Y-E-A-R-U-P. Both of them offer coaching and mentorship to up-and-coming generations to ensure that tomorrow's cybersecurity professional cadre is diverse and inclusive, resilient and strong. And so I just wanted to make a shout out to those two organizations. There are so many worthy organizations. And so I would just say at whatever stage of your career you're at, to make sure you look above and below in terms of career progression and mentor and coach where you can. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that's kind of the reason why we started this podcast was a give back to the community and bringing on uh, experts like yourself and people of accomplishment always makes my job a whole lot easier because I don't have to come up with a week's worth of wisdom. I can turn to others who have had that. And I think your insights have been spectacularly great. So I want to thank you again. This has been Joy Purser has been my guest today. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy with CISO Tradecraft. And if you like our show, again, as I say, please continue to follow us on LinkedIn. If you're not doing so already, what are you waiting for? We've got all kinds of stuff that we put out other than just the episodes, and that should work out really well. In the meantime, until our next episode, stay safe out there.